Hello, and welcome to the Commander Theory Podcast. I'm Nick Beatman, and I'm here with my friend, Zach Mack. Hello, theorists. So today, we are going to be continuing our series of retrospectives with one of my favorite sets, Mirage. Mirage was released on October 8th, 1996, and it was an early set in Magic's history, but was extremely influential, and it really marked a high point in early Magic's art and design. Um, but before we jump in, and we got a lot to talk about, but before we jump in, uh, I want to briefly talk about our Patreon. If you head on over to patreon.com slash theory, you can support the show and get sweet benefits for as little as $1 a month. If you aren't ready to be a patron yet, you can help us out by rating us or reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. All right, uh, let's let's talk about Mirage. And there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I just want to hit on a couple milestones. Mirage was the first set designed for limited play. Like you could, you know, put packs together out of Ice Age or Alliances or whatever, but they weren't really balanced for that. They didn't have like the right number of creatures in each color. Like it was hard to get anything remotely playable and wasn't super fun. But Mirage, they actually came in uh, looking to make it so that you could draft this set and, you know, have a functional deck. And, and so it really, uh, opened up a completely new way to to play Magic for people. Uh, what what are some other innovations to come out of Mirage? So basically, like the first age of Magic design is like Alpha. It's a lot of the sets that we've been talking about, the Dark. But like uh, when we were talking about the Dark before, like a lot of the cards themselves were very flavorful in trying to tell a story, and that's very indicative of like early magic design this is basically the first time that they looked at like a set and they looked at like blocks and went what do we want to do with this um like what is this set going to contribute to like the set after it how do we make these fit together how do we create like a greater ecosystem for the year so this is really the first time that there was um a set as a part of a planned block and that uh obviously had huge ramifications for future design Hmm. definitely and uh another thing i want to highlight is mirage was the set that introduced reminder text so previously you know when you got a card with cumulative upkeep or something you were pretty much left on your own to figure out exactly what that meant and there wasn't a lot of uh resources out there obviously like you know wizards web presence wasn't at the top of its game in 1996 um so you kind of just had to learn i mean it it made it a lot harder to get into the game you you couldn't really figure things out for yourself prior to this reminder text giving you like basic information about how these new mechanics work so uh I, i think that mirage in addition to uh really kicking off limited magic in a big way and kicking off the block structure in a big way it also made it easier to get into the game and to um and really made it a point to make it easier to teach people how to play that also just has like huge ramifications for how magic was designed right like this is really the first time that they were like okay well how do we get new players like eased into this game um because at this point it'd been a few years um they're still trying to figure out like printing and things like that but they had pretty much figured out that this was going to be a consistent thing like 
the game was growing, more people were playing, and the choke point seemed to be like the new player. Like if they could get the new player playing the game more, then uh then they were hooked basically. Mm-hmm. So reminder text has a huge, huge uh, part of that. You can open up a pack and actually understand like what the game is trying to make you do. Yeah, I, I will say though that they didn't execute it perfectly. Um no, oh god. The, <laughs> yeah. So while like flanking and island home had reminder text, uh phasing and cumulative upkeep did not. So it you know, you you still had to go outside of the cards themselves to try to figure out what those mechanics did, which was kind of a problem because phasing was really confusing and like wasn't well implemented in the rules initially. It, it caused a lot of issues with like well, how does phasing work with ETB effects? And for a while it worked one way and then they changed it and now it works differently. <laughs> Definitely not perfect uh, in that respect and like, but still a big step forward and um, certainly uh, a, a positive innovation that has continued to this day. Yeah, and I think another thing is that it's like showing along with like the planned blocks that they were trying to take a more holistic view of the game and like how they were presenting the game to everybody. Mm-hmm. Like we're not just looking at like gamers and gamers who happen to like magic and uh, who happen to have magic cards. Now we're looking at like, well, how does a new person get into the game? Does this set play well with the other sets around it? Like what are the mechanics going to do? And so uh, before we get into that, there is, um, a little bit we're going to talk about like behind the scenes work so do you want to start getting into some of the stuff that you learned like looking into this yeah and uh, i want to talk a bit about the art and world building of mirage yeah i'm excited to hear about this yeah yeah and i know this this you know not everyone is, is super interested in this topic but there's some just while digging into this i've found some really inf- interesting information some juicy stuff that uh doesn't paint wizards in the best light. But I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Let me just start with the facts here. Um, so, uh, Alliances, which was the set preceding Mirage, uh, Alliances marked the start of Sue Ann Harkey's tenure as the art director for Magic. And uh, I, I talked about this a little bit in the um, Seasons Past episode we did on Alliances with um, Charlotte. Basically, there were big changes in how the art direction was done under Sue Ann Harkey. She brought in a lot of new, really talented artists. Uh, I I mentioned in the Alliances episode that Alliances had the first artist credits for Therese Nielsen and Rebecca Guay. In Mirage, we had the first artist credits for, and and you're not going to believe this list, uh, first artist credits for Donato Giancola, Mm -hmm. John Avon, Kev Walker, Scott M. Fisher, Adam Rex, and Chippy. Like, wow. Uh, Some of the best artists in Magic ever got their start in Mirage. And it was because of Sue Anarchy recruiting uh, talented artists outside of of who Magic had traditionally worked with. Um, Another important detail, um, Mirage wasn't designed with an African theme in mind. Uh, the set was just designed to play, you know, it was normal magic and the set's flavor wasn't given a lot of thought. Um, and Bill Rose, the, the 
VP in charge of Studio X, who previously was the VP of um, R&D for many, many years at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, you know, he, he said that he always assumed Mirage would be classic fantasy like Alpha was as he was designing it. But when he arrived at Wizards, a new art director was appointed to Magic, Sue Ann Harkey. And she asked Bill if he had any plans for Mirage's setting. And basically, Bill Rose gave her carte blanche, do whatever you want. So Sue Ann Harkey was the person who chose the African setting for Mirage. And I mean, she kind of knocked it out of the park. She did an excellent job in creating this African fantasy setting out of nothing. Like she was given a complete blank slate and she built the the setting of Jamura from the ground up. And it, it really does a great job of, of conveying both the African influence and the fact that it is fantasy, it is magic. Um, and the, the flavor is just incredible. So uh, not only was, so, so I, I'm just so impressed with this woman. Like she came in um, and immediately completely changed how magic looked. Like if you compare uh, Homelands, which was the last set released before she became art detector, art director and weatherlight which was the last set that she was credited as the art director um these were released less than two years apart and it's just night and day the quality is so much better the the like like you know you kind of cringe a little bit looking at a lot of homelands cards you you don't really focus on the art that much but looking at the weatherlight just browsing through the card list you just get pulled into the art in a way that wasn't very common um, prior to then. So I I think she did an incredible job just by uh, I don't know whatever metric you want to look at like yeah. you know, creating uh, unique interesting worlds, uh, bringing on talented artists, changing the look of the game for the better. I think she was really really successful at her job. But and here is the the part that's like less grounded. In fact, it's a bit more hearsay. I'm pulling a lot from this interview that um, Jesse Mason did on his blog, Killing a Goldfish. So he interviewed Sue Ann Harkey. This is, you know, straight. A lot of these details are straight from her. I don't know. uh, It's I mean, you could say it's hearsay. I don't know exactly how much of this is is true, but assuming you take her at her word. It looks really, really bad for wizards. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a good look at all. Um, so here's and you know, like Jesse Mason interview in his interview uh, doesn't really pretend to be super impartial, but so you can take this with as much salt as you want. But here is how the story is communicated in this interview. So prior to Sue and Harkey getting the position, uh, Jesper Murfors was the art director of Magic, and he was very, very close with the other artists working on magic at the time. Um, it was, I mean, he basically recruited a lot of artists out of his pool of friends. So the, the first couple releases of magic, it was really Jesper and his friends illustrating a lot of the cards, the, uh, and, and the way magic's art originally worked is the artists got royalties per card printed. Um, Hmm. And uh, the, the so Magic's success, very, very fast success, uh, made those original artists a ton of money. 
now that their sets now that like wizard sets started to go into print runs of 500 million cards like paying royalties per card printed was not like that just did not scale well so one there was a, a couple transitioning transitions happening around this time so one uh, wizards decreed that artists were going to be paid up front for the work wizards would own the art um, but and there would not be any further royalties per card printed um, so that was happening around the time right around the same time uh, Jesper Murfors decided to leave I don't know if it was connected to the change um, from royalties to upfront payment uh, but this is right around the time it happened so the position of art director was open and uh, Sue came in and she was willing to to be the bad guy and take on the role of like representing the company and saying and telling all the artists like you're no longer getting royalties here's the new deal uh here's your new contract obviously that didn't make her super popular with the artists at the time but you know she she bought that bullet and that was right around the beginning of her tenure as um art director she came in kind of with a vision for how things wanted to be, how she wanted things to be. Um, she really wanted to chase bigger artists and um, uh, she didn't have a lot of, of sympathy for the artists who, who started with magic. Um, you know, the, the Tom Wayner strands and the Douglas Schulers, the people who illustrated the, um, the, the very early cards, but maybe weren't the caliber of artists that she wanted for the game. Uh, but, one thing that was kind of interesting uh, was that R&D had it written out as a rule that uh, the art director needed to retain art continuity between sets, which meant commissioning more of the early magic artists. So she wasn't able to just like let all of these old artists go. Um, She was she had to do things more slowly. She was able to, she wasn't able to like completely change the look of magic overnight. And so you can see there are some cards still in, uh, in, I mean, certainly in alliances, but also in Mirage that wouldn't pass muster in, in modern magic mm-hmm. alongside, you know, classics, uh, by Therese Nielsen, by Rebecca Gway, by, um, Donata Giancola, all these people who of course are, have, um, are famous as magic artists and, and of course beyond that for some of them who have careers outside of magic so there was conflict between her and the artists because they didn't like this new payment structure there was a bit of conflict between her and r&d because she wanted to let some of the early artists go and well i mean they weren't hired but stop using them r&d said you had to maintain art continuity and then another issue um a, a point of conflict between her and R and D is that she didn't actually play magic. Um, and some people in R and D uh, were really against the idea of an art director who didn't play magic. They, they were convinced that uh, in order to really understand what's needed from an artist, you had to play the game and understand the game. Sue didn't play. <laughs> so, a couple there are a couple things that like just made her tenure as art director a little bit rockier than it had to be and then for whatever reason um jesper murfors uh decided to come back 
So, you know, just for Murphorce, he was a founder. He was really close with the other founding people, the people who created uh, magic at the beginning of the game. And they really wanted Jesper Mirfors back. They weren't happy that he had left. Uh, and so uh, despite her uh, having a lot of success in her really short run as art director, she made that uh, she changed the look of the game, remained under budget, um, pulled in a lot of like really big name talents. Um, Wizards decide, decided to hire Jesper Mirfors back to work on art and immediately paid him more than Harky. Uh, so <laughs> just imagine this situation. And again, this is all being pulled from this this one interview. Um, maybe the reality is slightly different, but just imagine the situation. Uh, you are, you know, you're working on magic. You are working under an art director or, or you're working on a property, you're working on something. You're working under an art director who you think you can do a better job than you see him kind of kicking gigs to his friends frequently uh, and, and negotiating deals that work really well for them and, but don't really make financial sense for the company. Things change. He decides to leave. You get to step in and you get to, I mean, as much as possible, change things like you're, you're, you're doing work. You're really proud of you are pulling in people who who are are big names who are bringing a lot of attention to the game who are creating pieces that are beautiful that are much much better than anything that was being made under the previous guy um and uh and, and like you are given a huge assignment like hey let's just do uh, do whatever you want to do for the look of this new world in magic uh we're doing three sets all set in the same place do whatever the heck you want uh, you come up with something really ambitious that isn't really common in fantasy at the time and you knock it out of the park, you completely nail it and you do all this while being under budget. Uh, <laughs> and then they hire back the guy who was worse than you and pay him more than you. Uh, I, it's, it's galling. It's really, really galling. Again, I don't know. This is all, this is coming from Sue Ann Harkey. I don't know. Um, there, there's not a lot of like objective sources about this information, but wow, if if this is real and this, it's kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this whole story, like as you are telling it, is really upsetting. I guess, like it's <laughs> like, like how can it be that like all of this happened? No one is talking. Like no one talked about it. Like. I guess this was like at a point when magic was up and coming and like people weren't as like concerned as like it within the company as much as like what the game was doing. So maybe it like slipped under the radar, but that is, I mean like that is insane. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I would like to talk to people who were there at the company early who maybe don't work with them anymore just to see like what it was like, because like that is that's crazy like because this person like suan would have basically like changed the course of magic for the rest of its existence and then like basically gets no credit for it which is yeah absolutely insane <laughs> yeah it, it is so unbelievable uh, like understandably she was not 
very pleased about what was happening uh, about Jesper being hired back and paid more than her. Yeah. So she was she was pretty upset, but her protests got her moved out of her position as art director. So um, a pretty big uh, that's not quite the thank you. I, I think she deserved. No. After, <laughs> but like demonstrably, the game looks much better under her tenure. Like you, you can put Ice Age side to side with Weatherlight. You can put uh, Homeland side to side with Visions. The game just like she knocked it out of the park. I don't know if there's anything else going on. But um, it's it's a really weird way to celebrate and reward somebody who seems to have done an excellent job. Yeah. But what you asked him to do. Uh, but yeah, like absolutely insane. So that, that's just a bit of um, backstory. Um, I, I really love the look of Mirage. I, I think that. Um, I mean, like I said before, just like going through these cards they pull you in uh in a way that wasn't really common prior to that um just more detailed more realistic um really beautiful pieces of art and i don't want to spend too much more time on this because there's of course a <laughs> lot of other things to talk about with mirage um any last comments on on the art direction of art of mirage the setting of mirage before we move on to some mechanics mirage is one of my I've said this a few times, I guess, but there's just a lot of magic sets. Like Mirage is one of the sets that I like think back to like most fondly, if that makes sense. Like, and a lot of that is because of the art direction, and it makes sense now. Like as you were going through all of that, like at the very beginning, talking about the new artists added to it, and where like old magic cards got like the imagination going, like Mirage really like just actually looks good. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like mirage like just actually like you look at a card and you're like wow that is incredible like and it can be something as simple as like the savage twister art which is just like cool colors and whatever or it could be like something that's like kind of abstract like a like a stalking tiger or like a like a the we'll talk more about charms, but like seedling charm, I remember looking at for the first time. Cause there's a lot going on in this art. Like you can stare at it and look at it. And it really like made me want to play magic when I was young. So mm-hmm. even though I wasn't play, well, I guess actually I was probably starting to play, but not like, I didn't know how the rules worked. No, 97. No, no. I, it was another few years before I was actually, like in the sauce, but I do remember looking at old Mirage cards and being like, wow, like I want to play this. And mm-hmm. so for that reason alone, I think this is deserving of conversation, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely started collecting magic right around this time. I didn't really like, you know, start playing until a couple of years later, but it was the cards that pulled me into the game, just like looking at them and how, how beautiful they were, despite not really understanding how they worked um and mirage was a big part of that i think it would have been different if i was cracking packs of you know homelands or fallen empires as opposed to mirage and and fifth edition and the other sets under her tenure yeah definitely i mean ah wow yeah that's a big big story to to start off (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah maybe maybe something a little less heavy let's let's jump into the mechanics um (laughs) 
So there were uh, a couple mechanics continued from previous sets in Mirage. Um, the cantrips, for example, there are cantrips in the set, but I don't think we're going to spend much time talking about that. You can check out the Alliances podcast for a bit on that. Um, they also brought back cumulative upkeep on only five cards. Um, but I think that they, I, I feel like these cumulative upkeep designs are a bit more interesting than what we saw before. Like, I think they got a better sense of like um, the trade-off between the upfront cost and the cumulative upkeep cost. And like, I feel like several of these cumulative upkeep cards are just like much more powerful and interesting than what we saw in like ice age and um, alliances certainly a lot of lower cumulative upkeep costs and that's a, a nice nice one like no, not so many like cumulative upkeep three that you're yes. just never going to be able to <laughs> or you do around. it one time and yeah. then <laughs> then you're kind of <laughs> screwed over <laughs> mm-hmm. um but let, let's get into the new mechanics that came out of mirage um let's let's talk about flanking yeah um so flanking is it's kind of a weird one but it's really cool so the idea was like we got a bunch of horse men sometimes literal centaurs um and they are better at combat than these other people so how do we represent that so flanking was their their like way of doing that and what it is is whenever a creature without flanking is blocking a creature with flanking that creature gets minus one minus one until end of turn so basically like the creature is um worse at combat because they do not have horse height and horse legs and Mm -hmm. either be on a horse or be a horse themselves (laughs) (laughs) um so like a an example of this is like a joel centaur which is a two two for three it's a one green green and it's a centaur and it has flanking um, and it has shroud. So just a two, two shroud flanking, pretty simple design. Can't really mess with it. It's too fast, too slippery. Um, and he's hard to tangle with in combat. So um, how do you, how do you feel about flanking in general? Like, do you think they pulled the mechanic off? Well, um, looking back, what are your thoughts on it? I think it's interesting. Um... I don't know if the execution is that great. There's a couple things about it that um, make me see why it hasn't really been brought back. Like, first off, okay, I get the flavor. Like, I'm on a horse, you're not. So I'm going to run you down. Okay, that makes sense. Um, But just in terms of, uh, like, memory issues, the fact that... um, if your blocking creature has flanking, it doesn't get minus one, minus one. I feel like you're going to forget that some of the time. (laughs) Um, It'd certainly be a lot easier to process if it was just uh, whenever a creature blocks this creature, it gets minus one, minus one. Also, like giving things minus one, minus one uh, only really feels at home in black. That's just like really does not really appear outside of black in in other colors so to have it on this mechanic that's appearing in like all colors is just kind of um feels kind of muddy in terms of the color pie and you'd get basically the same if you get mostly the same effect 
if it was just uh you know whenever a creature blocks this one it gets plus one plus one until end of turn you know pumping the creature itself in a bushido style ability uh makes a bit more color pie sense and just feels like it could go in any color like any there's there's pump effects in pretty much any color but minus one minus one just feels really narrowly a black thing it's like a cool way of showing i'm better at combat but like the implications are like so funny (laughs) like Mm -hmm. like oh no that guy on a horse is here oh god i'm dead (laughs) 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 like 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 Oh, Jimmy, get in the way of that guy. Oh, no, Jimmy's dead. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, they didn't even cross swords yet. Yeah, it also, like, makes combat math really messy. Like, okay, let's say I have two two twos. I'm going to have to sacrifice them both to kill your, your two two flanker. Uh, it, you know, just, I'm sure there's been situations where people like made accidentally made really unprofitable blocks just because they didn't realize that flanking hit all of the creatures that were blocking yeah (laughs) and and if it was just like a single pump to the attacking creature that would kind of uh simplify things a bit yeah uh another interesting thing about flanking is um well okay so flanking was mentioned on 12 cards 10 of those are creatures the other two are like one's an enchantment that hoses flankers and the other is an aura that gives a creature flanking whatever Uh, of the 10 creatures in mirage with flanking Nine of them are two twos. Um, <laughs> so it, I guess they didn't think it was interesting to put on a lot of different sized creatures. Uh, I don't really know what that was about. I guess it, it's just like so weird to have nine creatures that are all functionally extremely similar and all the same size. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think that it, that would happen in a modern design. No, I mean, I, I totally agree with you because my intuition also looking back at, at cards from this set and just like creatures in general is that there is a lot of like one, one and two twos. Um, so now looking back and seeing that like, oh, yeah, all the flankers were two twos, uh, like a lot of the shadow guys were two ones or one ones or two twos. Like it kind of makes sense. It's like, oh, my intuition was correct at the time. Like they just didn't put in it's kind of hard to remember a lot of the flanking guys because like they all blend into each other there's nine of them with the exact same stats so yeah but this next one's got a lot of a lot of history here do we want to talk about the next mechanic sure yeah uh, read it off for us yeah so this is phasing so i don't know if i am gonna read off everything phasing does like the rules But basically what phasing is, is a permanent with phasing uh, is there when you cast it. And then at the beginning of your next turn, it phases out. It just kind of disappears. You pretend like it doesn't exist. You keep any equipment on it, any auras on it, any counters on it. It's just kind of not there (laughs) for a little bit. Can't target it, can't interact with it. And then the next turn, when your turn starts, if it's phased out, it phases in. And it's there, it has all its auras, its counters, etc, etc. It doesn't have to be a creature. You can have uh, lands with phasing, you can have artifacts with phasing, enchantments, whatever. But phasing, we kind of have been getting a little bit more of because they realized like as much rules baggage as phasing has, it also can be used 
beneficially because sometimes you want to eerie interlude your board in response to a wrath of god but you have a bunch of tokens so that doesn't quite work out but a teferi's protection or something or a guardian of faith there you go so like if you flash in a guardian of faith all of a sudden all your tokens are saved because they're phased out they didn't exile they didn't poof they just come back uh, at the beginning of your next turn so i think it's cool that they've gone back to phasing i think it's the kind of thing that like makes the game better that it's here and um they they did a lot with it do you want to kind of get into phasing maybe individual phasing cards or how you feel they executed on phasing this first time out yeah uh so i'm i don't love just phasing uh on a creature yeah like <laughs> this this creature is undercosted, but it has phasing so it's only there half the time I don't think that's very interesting. I really don't like dis- uh, downside mechanics because um, it's just not exciting if like the brand new thing is every card that's on it is worse. And, <laughs> and especially like um, and especially like for new players, like maybe they, this new player can't tell that like a three two flyer for three is above the curve. So they just see this card with phasing and they don't recognize that it's a trade-off between like good stats and having phasing. So it just looks like a bad card to them. Mm-hmm. So that's not great, but <laughs> I will give them a lot of credit because they recognized in the very first set in Mirage that phasing can do a lot of things. For example, there's like Teferi's Imp, which is two and a blue for a one, one flying phasing when it phases out, discard a card. When it phases in, draw a card. So it's using phasing um, to have this like cycle of triggers that takes more than one turn to happen. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, I think it's like almost like a precursor to night and day in uh, in Nistrad Midnight Hunt. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, they also like see phasing as a way to kind of mess with your opponents there's a couple things that like phase out your opponent's permanence um there's like shimmer which is like really nasty would never get printed these days but it's two blue blue for an enchantment um as it enters the battlefield choose a land type all lands of the chosen type gain phasing so if you're up against like a mono white player you name planes they're gone their lands are gone half of the time uh so I mean it's it's interesting like uh so they they're seeing the offensive applications of phasing uh and they're also seeing like the protective applications of phasing cuz like in Mirage there's Mist Dragon which is 4 blue blue for a 4 4 dragon you can pay 0 to give it flying you can pay 0 to make it lose flying and you can pay 3 blue blue to have it phase out well clearly they they wouldn't make like if phasing were purely a downside they wouldn't put that ability on there um, but giving it this activated ability means that you can potentially protect it if you need to. Um, so I honestly like they saw that they had something on their hands that was really uh, broad in its application and they immediately started mining that in the first set. And so I'll give them credit for that. And, you know, it's it's these other applications that are the kind that we're bringing back to modern magic. I pretty much agree with you entirely. And and this isn't even to say that like some of the gameplay wasn't fun on some of these cards too. Like I'd forgotten about Shimmer until I'd looked at the show notes and that's pretty funny. But I I Miss Dragon has a special place in my heart. 
Uh, I played with Teferi's Imp a lot back in the day. Uh, there's another, there's a land in the set, uh, Teferi's Island, that I played with a lot at the start of like my commander experience. I thought it was so funny because the, the mana payout on it is pretty bad, but it does ramp you the turn it comes in. It's, it's basically a land that enters the battlefield tapped, taps for two blue, um, and has phasing. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't get to use it for two turns, but it does ramp you that turn it's there. And I played that in like some big mana blue black decks. I played that in like Derevi because you can untap it and making two blue like a bunch of times is turns out to be pretty good. Um so yeah, it's not even like all these cards are like bad, bad. It's just uh I think they didn't realize like the potential of the mechanic as they were making it but they definitely like got pretty close there's a lot of fun gameplay still even though um you look at teferi's drake and go oh that looks bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so definitely cool that we're seeing like a better use for this old mechanic um do you want to keep moving do you want to keep on going to some of the the other mechanics or how they used them uh yeah let's I think well, I think we're just about out of uh, mechanics. Well, mm-hmm. okay, actually, there is one <laughs> mechanic that got introduced. Yeah, so there is one other mechanic uh, that got in Mirage that got retconned into not being a mechanic. Um, so I don't know if you count this, but uh, Island Home was oh. <laughs> <laughs> printed yeah. as a mechanic in Mirage. Um, Kukemsa Serpent, for example, has it. And Island Home is uh, two linked abilities. Um, if defending player controls no islands, this creature can't attack. And if you control no islands, sacrifice this creature. Uh, there was exactly one card in Mirage with this ability, but they printed a couple more throughout the block. Um, really, it was only put on things that live in the water. It's like a flavorful thing. Like, oh, obviously, if this leaves the water, it dies. And it can only get to you if there's water around you. Um, but it's been like the current Oracle text for Kukemsa Serpent is it's just it separated out the two abilities. Island Home is no longer a thing, but it was a a named mechanic in the set. Yeah, that is actually really funny because, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that could have like these Island Walk and other things in the set, too, but. I guess they were like, why don't we just save some words and print Island Home? And then it turned out no one liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out downside mechanics feel bad. Yeah, I definitely agree with the uh, retconning of this to no longer be a mechanic. Um, yeah, not I having think, something that takes up roll baggage. Yeah, and, and just like gameplay has to trump flavor sometimes. Like you can't just have every blue creature be bound to what kind of basic lands your opponents are playing that, that's <laughs> terrible that's pretty um, but i think we can get onto some of the notable cycles because there were several uh cycles in mirage that ended up being extremely influential in later design so what's this uh, first one we're going to be talking about so the first cycle um and i think this is the first time we even saw them right or were the yes. charms Correct. So charms are um, kind of, it's more of a colloquial term than like an official magic term, but R&D calls them that too. 
or I guess Studio X now, I should say. But uh, a charm is basically it's it usually is like an instant. Uh, it costs just a few mana. It's pretty cheap usually, and they give you an option between a bunch of effects that like each one effect isn't really worth a card, but you have the option to do any of the three of them at kind of any time. So um, the power comes in like the flexibility of them, even though like any one of the effects might not be worth a card. So uh, an example of this would be Sapphire Charm, which is an instant. It costs blue, so just a single blue pip. And it says, choose one. Target player draws a card at the beginning of the next turn's upkeep. Target creature and opponent controls phases out. Target creature gains flying until end of turn. So any of those is like not like a card that like draws a card next turn (laughs) isn't very good. A card that phases out a creature isn't necessarily good. A card that grants flying and doesn't draw you a card isn't very good, but the fact that you can do any of them when you need them, like, oh, that's attacking me, oh, it's phased out now. Oh, well, nothing's going on, draw a card. Oh, uh, you don't have a flying blocker, attack you for the win. Like, that's what makes the charms powerful. And if you're listening to this, you know that, but um, it's interesting to to see that this was, like, where this invention came from, because it is, to this day, affecting magic design. We we're still getting charms. We just saw Archmage's charm in, in Modern Horizons 2, and that has done a lot of work there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so we're still getting charms. People like charms. I love charms. You probably love charms. Um, and we had a cycle of them here. Yeah, so definitely um, a popular type of design, which influenced a lot of future cards. Uh, and then similarly, we had a cycle of lands in this set. Uh, and I'll just read one off to you, and you tell me, Maybe uh, <laughs> how what influential you think yeah. it's been, yeah, or what you'd call it. Uh-huh. Um, so one of these is Rocky Tarpit. It's a land that enters the battlefield tapped, and you can sacrifice it to search your library for a swamp or mountain card, put it onto the battlefield, and then shuffle. Uh, what do you think about this design? Man, uh, yeah, I feel like this could be really powerful if you just uh, changed some of the text on this card. Um, because it's a fetch land. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the first time we had fetch lands and all of them have like the coolest art like all of them look so rad <laughs> they're so cool um i don't know i mean everyone listening to this kind of knows that uh fetch lands have influenced magic massively some people think they were a mistake i don't think these are a mistake you know like obviously these don't push a power over the top and they still had the same functionality that like quote good fetches have the Zendikar fetches and the onslaught fetches but like this is still cool it's a way to fix mana and uh it originated very long ago right here in mirage and of course like even though these aren't aren't quite as good as the onslaught fetches or the Zendikar fetches like they um they share lineage with Commander All Stars, Terramorphic Expanse, Evolving Wilds—all these, uh, these budget lands that allow people to fix their mana bases. So, um, it's uh, it, it's great that these were introduced here, and clearly it shows that they're thinking of additional ways to fix mana back in this period of Magic. These cycles too—they're really thinking about like what Magic could be like where hasn't magic been what are cool things like i love charms because it's not really pushing like power level necessarily as much as like well what things make sense 
together like uh what are blue things to do well sapphire charm has an answer for you um and the same with the fetch lands it's like well what are other ways to fix mana that interact with cards that we have uh well what if you got like a mountain or a swamp onto the battlefield oh okay well let's let's see how that plays I think that's pretty cool. It's cool to see that like genesis of the idea. All right, uh, we've got one last cycle we're going to talk about. There were a couple other cycles, but not all of them ended up being very notable. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is the cycle of dragons. So we mentioned one up above when we were talking about Mist Dragon, but there were five dragons in the set, one in each, well, more than five dragons. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> at least five dragons, uh, one in each color, and they all cost four and MM for a 4-4 flying dragon and they all had some other ability on top of that um but i i think that this is notable just because like you know early on they recognized that dragons were popular they tried to fill the set with more of them and they spread them across all the colors and this is something that they've continued to do uh this is really the only iconic that regularly gets pushed into other colors because it is just so popular and I, th- I think this is like an early, I don't know if this is an early recognition of the fact uh, that just dragons are kind of qualitatively different from pretty much every other creature type. Um, but it, I, I would like to think that they had that thought when they put these cards in the set. Yeah, I would too. And, and it, I mean, they're right. Like dragons rule, <laughs> like dragons kick so much, butt. like, yes, please. <laughs> um and and you can tell that they really did think about what the dragons looked like in each color so we talked about mist dragon that's the blue one but i'm gonna go through in like wooberg order just so that people know so the first one the white one is pearl dragon it's a four four flyer for six mana four white white and it has uh one in a white get plus zero plus one until end of turn so um i mean it boosts the booty it just makes the toughness big uh, and is a 4-4 flyer, so not the most powerful design, but like, if you're a white player, but also like dragons at the time, you're like, oh, this is great. I love dragons. Blue is Mist Dragon, and I, it, this one is really cool. It's just a 4-4 uh, dragon for 6 mana, 4 blue-blue, and it has three activated abilities. Zero, gain flying. Zero, lose flying. And three blue-blue, phase out. So your win condition can can jump it can protect itself i i think this is a great design especially for back in the day when creatures were not necessarily the most powerful being able to save itself is kind of cool even though it's like a million mana um the black one was catacomb dragon which i think was is, is expensive still but um catacomb dragon is a four four flyer for six four and two black um it has flying and whenever catacomb dragon is blocked by a non-artifact non-dragon creature Uh, that creature's power is halved rounded up until end of turn so basically it's like really scary and it's hard to kill it in combat because it's like a spooky black dragon (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is so cool (laughs) it's so funny um like basically you you kind of had to chump block the dragon you have to block it pretty hard with a lot of flyers but in in reality, it just kind of gets through because blocking it's such a pain in the butt. Like killing it through combat's pretty hard. Um, the red one was volcanic dragon, and there's a caveat here. But the volcanic dragon is pretty simple. Um, it is a four four for six, like the others. It has flying, like the others, and it says 
Volcanic Dragon is unaffected by summoning sickness. Um, we've seen a buffed version of this card at Uncommon nowadays, but this was just flying in haste for six mana on a 4-4. Four, four. It was pretty strong back in the day. Um, and then the green one is, I think, the one that really shows how much they were thinking about this. It's Canopy Dragon. And this one doesn't have flying, so it is a 4-4 four, four trample for six, four and two green. And it says one green gains flying and loses trample until end of turn. So it's like a dragon that hangs out in the trees until it needs to take off and then you can pay to make it jump. So all in all, like this is a cool cycle. Like they really were thinking about colors. They really were thinking about what would a dragon in each color look like? What they would they do? And they're pretty rad. So I don't know. Should we talk about the caveat dragons that aren't part of the cycle or go for it? You take one and I, I might have a tidbit for the other. So Crimson Hellkite, uh, basically there's two other dragons in the set. Uh, they both cost nine mana, but one of them is red. It's called Crimson Hellkite, and it is a 6-6 six, six flyer for nine mana. Six red, red, red. Uh, and why? It has X tap. Crimson Hellkite deals X damage to target creature. Spend only red mana this way. So it was a consistent form of like creature destruction. But also it's just a game ender. It's a 6-6 six, six flyer in a world where everything else that flies is like a 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> so um i don't know if i've ever seen a crimson hellkite cast um i've definitely seen them in boxes and the art is like pretty spectacular like the lighting on it is really cool it's like at the precipice of this like erupting volcano so it's like backlit and underlit and it's pretty cool but that was one of the dragons in the set not part of the cycle and then there is one more which um is a pet card of mine, so I'll get back to it at least to mention it. But you have a story about uh, Tika's dragon. Yeah, so um, this is kind of interesting. Uh, Tika's dragon is actually uh, based on a character in a magic anthology called Distant Plains. So they released uh, this book, an anthology of short stories, and one of them was centered around Tika, who is an artificer who created a guardian dragon to protect her other her uh, various works of artifice. Um, and so this is, I think this might be the first instance of a card in a main set referencing lore from, uh, you know, one of these supplemental story products. And, and again, there's, there's exceptions like arena, of course, but this is like the first time I think in a main set that this happened, but go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was just going to say, I, I, as far as I know, that that is correct. Like, I've heard that story, too. Um, and I think it's pretty cool because, like, we haven't, I, we haven't seen Tika as a card, but we've seen Tika's dragon. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that's something that maybe some commander legend in the future will show us. But yeah, that that is actually, I didn't realize that that was maybe the first time that they've done that. But uh, Tika's dragon... Uh, is a another nine mana dragon so it is an artifact creature um, and at the time it said tika's dragon counts as a dragon in the rules text but now it's just an artifact creature dragon uh, and it is a five five so for nine mana you get a five five with a bunch of abilities flying trample and rampage four so just a refresher on rampage for each creature blocking this creature beyond the first this creature gets plus four plus four so not the most intuitive mechanic <laughs> that they've <laughs> ever made. But um, 
block with two thopters, well, tough luck. You're taking even more damage now, um, which is uh, part of my story later. But uh, dragons really have been part of the game for a long time. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think they recognize that. Um, do you want to get into like one of the coolest things? One of the cool, they had like a lot of nine mana cards in the set, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And they did something with one of them that was just absolutely crazy. Do you want to talk about this? Yeah. Um, so this is several cards that all connect together. Um, yeah. <laughs> So one of them is Feral Shadow. It's two and a black for a 2-1 Night Stalker with flying. Uh, there's Breath Stealer, which is two and a black for a 2-2 Night Stalker with black. It gets plus a minus one until end of turn. So a little bit of like Flowstone ability on there. And then the third is Urborg Panther. So Urborg Panther is two and a black for a 2-2 Night Stalker. And you can pay black and sacrifice it to destroy target creature blocking Urborg Panther. Or you can sacrifice Feral Shadow, Breath Stealer, and Urborg Panther to search your library for Spirit of the Night and put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. So Spirit of the Night is 6 black 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 for a 6-5 legend with flying, trample, protection from black. It has first strike when attacking, and it has haste. Uh, it's interesting to note that its power and toughness is equal to the combined power and toughnesses of the three Night Stalkers, and its mana cost is equal to what their three mana costs added together. Um, but this is, it's just, this is the first time a card in Magic has referenced another card, uh, and it's... I mean, it's just so interesting. They were clearly really thinking outside the box here. I I can't imagine the surprise and like curiosity that was fueled when you like cracked your pack of Mirage and you saw your Urborg Panther and you're, you're thinking like, what the heck is Feral Shadow? What the heck is Breath Stealer? And what is Spirit of the Night? And why do I want it in play? Um, <laughs> so that is is so neat to me. I don't think Magic has room for a lot of effects but like this. But clearly, really innovative, really, um, really clever thinking there. And of course, Spirit of the Night itself is very, very close to what Acroma Angel of Wrath ended up being. Um, so it, it's neat that this is really like the first kitchen sink style design. And it's it's cool that they sort of figured out that this was like an appealing text box and appealing card so early in the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely like I've done it one time when I was young in the olden days of casual 60 card made a spirit of the night. I it was difficult <laughs> because um, the cards aren't very good and they have two and one toughness. So they died at most things. So <laughs> it's definitely a different time. But I mean, like looking at spirit of the night as a kid. It was like, holy cow, like that looks like so much fun. Uh, and like you said, it really did get my imagination going. So I'm always going to love the Night Stalkers, even though I'm probably never going to play with this batch of them again. Um, and I think the other thing that Mirage did that was really cool, it, besides like exploring space like this, 
was it had a ton of legendary creatures. So uh, all the legendary creatures in Mirage also like absolutely captivated me. Like when I was younger, do you want to start getting into these ones or like, how do you want to do this section? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that, you know, obviously these commanders all predated Elder Dragon Highlander, or at least the popularity of the format. So the most of them certainly don't see a lot of representation on EDH rec. So I don't think we're going to spend like too much yeah. time on all the designs, especially the ones that have like literally two and three decks. But let's start off with one of the more interesting ones. And and I think you have familiarity with a couple of these. Yes, I have. I have made a few of these <laughs> commanders before. Um, do you want me to actually? Yeah, I'm going to talk about this one because I love him so much. Okay. It's um, Zerlin of the Claw is the first one we're going to talk about. And these are in no particular order. Really. Oh, no, these are in um, deck list order. So who has the most decks? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um. So Zerlin of the Claw is the most popular one, and you'll see why immediately. Um, with a whopping 264 decks on EDH rec, uh, Zerlin of the Claw is a 3-4 Vaishino Shaman uh, for 5 mana, 3 red red. Uh, and they have 1 red red tap. Sorry, search your library for a dragon card and put it onto the battlefield. It gains haste. Exile that creature at the beginning of the next end step. Um, so this is a mono red dragon list. You can cheat out big fat dragons and, um, and you do, um, the list is a blast. Uh, this is, uh, was a pet commander of mine. I've taken it apart because the gameplay was like, once people know that you can just dragon tyrant them to death, they don't let you live or let you have your commander. So, um, kind of had to stop mm-hmm. <laughs> to playing it but i still will always love him i still have the deck like together i'm never going to get rid of like the cards or the zerlin but um this deck is a blast it can do some crazy things dragons are awesome they're so cool um yeah <laughs> so he's he's our number one our number one guy yeah uh the next one i think this is one you've also built this yes. is mira holy avenger uh, two white green for a two three flying. Um, Got to look at the. I'm gonna Oracle guess text, she's an yeah. angel, yeah. But no, no, she's a human. Oh, okay. Yeah, really weird that she is flying, but uh, she's holy, so you know. All right. Uh, you know, she's a, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll allow it. Uh, she's a human cleric, and at the beginning of each end step, put a plus one plus one counter on Asmira Holy Avenger for each creature put into your graveyard from the battlefield this turn. Um, so, uh, tell us a little bit about how you built Ismira and, and what do you think about her? Yeah, um, I think Ismira is a, one of the commanders that I had uh, that eventually turned into uh, Dragonlord Silumgar, which eventually turned into Safia Eric's daughter. Um, basically, the idea was like create these loops so that Ismira gets very big, uh, watching all of the creatures die, and then you can smack people with her. So that was the original like impetus of the deck. It used a lot of shenanigans with persist creatures. It used Safi Eric's daughter in the list. It used Revel Arc. Um, it used Karmic Guide. Um, still would if I was going to make it again today. I think there's a lot more things you can do with plus one plus one counters too that uh, make Ismira pretty fun. And yeah, uh, this is a deck that like really kind of made me flex my muscles first getting into commander to think about like find some hidden gems like 
that aren't played very often that now people kind of know more about like um what's the like uh uh enchantment that you like sack um sack a creature to give something to regenerate something uh fanatical devotion fanatical devotion yeah so this deck like made me really push i had like an animal boneyard which is an enchant like a enchant land basically it says tap sack a creature gain life equal to its toughness um i used fanatical devotion which was a two and a white sacrifice a creature regenerate target creature i used martyr's cause Mm -hmm. which was two and a white sacrifice a creature prevent all damage to a creature or player for one source um perilous forays like it really pushed me to like find these cards and play with some interesting things and kind of showed me like how deep commander could be um yeah. and it, although honestly you haven't gone deep on sack outlets until you put life chisel, chisel in a deck that's, that's true <laughs> yeah that's really really pushing it huh that's the deep part of the iceberg meme like the very bottom <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah Izmir is very cool um and uh our number two yeah it looks like i have made a decent amount of commanders on this list which is really funny um do you want me to read off our number three commander? Uh, sure, go ahead. I'll, I'll preface this by saying that all of the remaining commanders are in less than 60 decks on EDH rec. Um, yeah, so I guess actually we don't need to... Uh, maybe I won't read off all of them. We'll just mention them. We can like name them or something like that. Sure. Okay, because um, yeah, the uh, our top two break 100. These next ones, I just realized, yeah, I'll have less than 60. Um but this next one is Hakim Loreweaver. Uh, they are a dwarf, and basically, they like you can put auras on him um, and get him back from the graveyard. Yeah. yeah, so he's like a really interesting kind of Voltroni list in blue. I, you I wanna... think that I think mm-hmm. that yeah, there's definitely something there with Hakim. I think maybe if he had another color and cost a lot less mana, this actually could be a neat commander in the modern day. Like the mm-hmm. the core of what he does is kind of cool. Yeah, this actually, like, one of the things about all these Mirage Commanders is that they all are actually hitting on something pretty interesting. Like, honestly, even the next Commander, so um, the next one is Tanawa, which is just, like, it's a 7-7 Serpent for 5 mana, 3 blue-blue. It has a Trample, and it has Phasing, and it says at the beginning of your upkeep, all lands you control phase out. And basically, this is, like, a noob tube deck. You, like... It has seven power. You like just try to hit someone with your like somewhat cheaper commander, um, and like kind of try to mitigate <laughs> your lands phasing out thing. Um, I've seen someone try to do this. It wasn't very good, um, but it, the art is pretty metal, and uh, killing someone in one shot is pretty metal. Nowadays, we have like a um, Tromocratus if you really want to do something like this. Yeah, but- or like a. Ruhan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are one or two neat things you can do with Taniwa, like um the the you could always um you could always like you know tap your lands in response to the upkeep trigger and then like sunder. Just mm-hmm. like try to break the parity that way. Um but yeah, I think this is one that mm, has kind of been left behind in the modern commander meta. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's just, I mean, I I would love to, if you sat down in front of me and you're like, I'm going to play my Tanawa deck, I'd be like, that is so cool. <laughs> but I, I do not expect it. Um, This next one, I would also lose my mind if, because I, I could see in the, some set, perhaps providing the cards we need, but 
The next one is Zuberry Golden Feather. Uh, and this is a 3-3 flying griffin for five. And I'm reading this one off because it's so funny. Um, and it, it counts as a griffin, so it's a griffin. And it says all other griffins get plus one, plus one. So Zuberry Golden Feather is like griffin tribal in white. And uh, that's pretty hilarious. <laughs> and one day we'll get enough good griffins for this to be a deck. I know, right? <laughs> But um, this next one is is kind of influential. Um, oh yeah! So this is uh, Shauku and Bringer. It's five black black for a five five flying. Uh, she can't attack if there's another creature on the battlefield. At the beginning of your upkeep, lose three life, and she has tap exile target creature and put a plus one plus one counter on Shauku. Uh, so this, you know, is is a really appealing ability, and and clearly this influenced. Um, fan favorites like avatar of woe or fissara the dreadful the art is really cool like pete venters uh created a a really spooky looking uh vampire woman here and uh you know she's prominent in the story of a couple sets so i I think they really did her justice with just a really neat card Um, yeah yeah i i absolutely agree this card is awesome (laughs) Uh, and I think we're getting down to the bottom of the barrel. I don't know. I don't want to spend too much time on, on the remaining. Yeah, there. we'll just we'll read them up. We've talked about Spirit of the Night. It was one. Um, Parage of Urborg is like a cat folk. Uh, I can't remember what. Is it just a cat warrior? Um, it's a mono black uh, for strike when attacking. Not very interesting. Siddhar Jabari. Uh, was a mono white legend with flanking, uh, and it, it's basically just a combat thing. It can tap things when it attacks. Hivis of the Scale uh, steals a dragon that's on the battlefield, um, and you don't have to untap him, so like taps to steal a dragon. Um, we have the opposite of a Zerlin of the Claw in Re- uh, Rashida Scalebane, uh, which is a 3 4 for 5 in white that can destroy target attacking or blocking dragon by tapping, and then you gain life equal to the dragon's power. And then the last one is Telemtor, which uh, is another 2-2 two, two with flanking, uh, but 5 mana, and if it attacks all creatures with flanking, get plus 1, plus 1. So like a, a uh, flanking lord um, with just like the coolest Kev Walker art. <laughs> like, yeah. So, so great. Um, so yeah, that's kind of all the commanders from this set. Um, I, I like that, you know, obviously they weren't designing for commander, but it's funny how they just kind of incidentally hit on like some styles of commanders like the the tribal commander with zoop with um Zuberi golden feather or mm-hmm. like the set mechanic rewarding commander with telemtor bumping all your um your flanking creatures yeah it is really cool and it's cool to see like how much unexplored space there still is with that too mm-hmm. like they really haven't done that many like uh keyword matters commanders um and i really think that they should and uh, if you're listening to this you might have heard me say that before when we talked about them then in Ikoria. but um this set is also notable because it has like a ton of staples and even a band card so can i read off the band card real quick everyone will kind of roll their eyes yeah go for it um it is flash so flash one of the silliest arts on ever ever printed on a magic card it's Two mana, you can put a creature from your hand on the battlefield, and if you don't pay 
the difference in CMC of that card. So like, let's say it's a five drop. If you don't pay the three extra, uh, you just immediately sacrifice the creature. Um, just a combo card. Um, I've used it kind of fairly before. I've seen other people use it fairly, but like, it's really just not played very heavily. Um, enabled like some pretty degenerate stuff in CDH. Uh, and it was printed in Mirage. <laughs> Yay, Mirage. Um, so that I, I don't know. I think that's notable. Like they're they're pushing design into some interesting places. So much so that a card has to get banned like twenty years after printing yeah. or something like that. I mean, or it was relevant years. in like uh, in other formats too. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time where you were you would like in your mono blue control mirror you'd like cast flash and then if your opponent counters it well okay they countered it if they don't counter it then you pay for three mana for your morphling and oops uh your opponent just let that through Mm -hmm. so um yeah it's an interesting card it's a shame it had to get banned i guess you know rules committee thinks protein hulk is a more fun card and that's possibly true depending on what you're doing with it <laughs> that's pretty much uh where i'm gonna leave that too um but there's a lot of staples in this set so the the first one that i mean everyone is gonna know it's in a lot like it's in over 150,000 decks on edh rec so I, I think like it's one of the most stapliest staples that could have existed this is rampant growth um so this was a mirage card uh kind of insane to think about that now actually mm-hmm. i know it definitely like as i was sort of preparing this episode i forgot oh yeah that's this was the first set uh where we saw rampant growth yeah so, so crazy <laughs> yeah and has really god i'm trying to think of like what preceded it. i guess there was like nature's lore but th- this is you know the prototypical ramp spell that greatly influenced all future green fixing and ramp designs Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and just yeah, influenced so many cards since it's printing too. Yeah. Uh, speaking of influential cards, I, th- I think you could probably lump these three, these next three together. What's yeah. up on the docket? <laughs> so uh we have some tutors. So the first one in 95k decks on EDH rec is Mystical Tutor. So this is a blue instant. Search your library for an instant. Interrupt mana source or sorcery. Just kidding. Search your library for an instant or sorcery. Uh, reveal it. Put it on top of your library. Or reveal it. Shuffle your library. And then put it on top. So you get to draw it next turn. Um, similarly is Enlightened Tutor in 82,000 decks on EDH rec, which searches for an enchantment or artifact. Puts it on top of your library. And then Worldly Tutor, which I, I still actually can't believe that Worldly Tutor is in that many less decks than the other ones but it is a uh, green search your library for a creature reveal it put it on top of your deck so i think with worldly tutor it might be a matter of um alternatives like green has so many tutor effects that you don't have to run worldly tutor but like mm-hmm. how many other enlightened tutors are there yeah i guess i guess that's true huh <laughs> yeah the green does have a a wide selection in regards to creature tutors Mm -hmm. this was also the set that we saw another uh innovation kind of that has affected commander greatly so this was the cycle of diamonds um basically the worst version of a mox you've ever seen but still pretty good and fair (laughs) 
Um, they all are two mana artifacts. They enter the battlefield tapped, and they tap for a mana of a color. Um, they're, what is it like? It's the white one. Marble diamond. Marble, yeah. Sky diamond, fire diamond, charcoal diamond. Moss um, diamond. For moss green, diamond. Yeah. That one, of course, doesn't see a lot of play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you're great. But these, like, massively influential. Um, and they're all in, like, 30,000 decks, or at least the, it looks like the blue, red, and black ones are in over 30,000 decks. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, is that, they're, yeah, they actually are all about the same. They're all in about oh, okay. 30,000 decks. Okay, that's crazy. Obviously a very influential <laughs> design. <laughs> yeah, it didn't take them that long to go from uh, Felwar Stone to this Diamond Cycle. I think they realized they, they'd hit upon something. Moving on to this next card. This is um, uh, perhaps <laughs> one of the less fair cards in the set. Uh, Lion's Eye Diamond is in 16,000 decks on EDA Trek, and for those who aren't familiar with it, it's zero mana for an artifact. Sacrifice Lion's Eye Diamond. Discard your hand. Add three mana of any one color to your mana pool. Um, so this is typically used in combo engines. It, it recently got a, a very good friend in... Um, oh my god, I'm blinking on the name. The Enchantment from Theros Beyond Death. Uh, that gives your stuff escape. Oh, um the breach uh, underworld breach underworld breach there we go um yeah so recently got a very good friend in underworld breach um but you know it's been doing fun fair magic kinds of things for a very long time uh and then we've got just a couple more cards here that sort of cross the the 10k threshold that we usually think of when we're looking at staples we've got crystal vein which is a land that taps for a colorless and you can tap and sacrifice it to add two colorless mana to your mana pool. So that's uh, for unfair decks that are trying to do something really fast in the early game, or like decks, say, mono brown decks that um, are happy to just have the potential for a little bit of extra juice in their mana base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the very last staple we're going to be talking about today is Cursed Totem which is two mana for an artifact. It's basically the creature version of uh, Null Rod. So players can't activate abilities of creatures. And that's yeah. in 11,000 decks on ADH Rec. Yeah, very good. Um, just got a reprint, right? In, um, it did. In Modern Horizons 2. Yeah, but all of this talk has kind of led us to uh, the end here where we're going to get into some of our, like, favorite cards some of our pet cards from the set but um i guess do you let, let's talk about that and then we'll talk about like overall how we feel about the set or like yeah impressions mm-hmm. okay uh l- let's just trade off i think our our pet cards sure. I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll start with um cadaverous bloom so this is three black green for an enchantment choose a card in your or exile a card in your hand uh add black black or green green to your mana pool so uh, this is a, a really interesting engine type card. I have like exiling things is a major cost in commander. It's definitely not quite as user friendly as like scourge familiar, um, but I have played this in a deck. I, I uh, made this like nourishing lich type um, obzon deck where I, I'm trying to get a lich into play, trying to gain a ton of life, 
uh, to draw a bunch of cards, to exile those cards to Cadaverous Bloom, to cast more life gain cards, and like basically cast your whole library in one go. So really fun little engine card that I, I wish was easier to fit into more decks. Yeah, really. It's like a yeah, pretty specific. Is it getting expensive nowadays too? Uh, last I checked, it was around ten dollars. Um, because it's reserve list, right? Or it is on the reserve list. Yeah, yeah, it's eleven dollars these days. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can still pick one up probably. Um, but this card is really cool. It was, I think, part of the first combo deck ever, right? Uh, this is one of the. First, if not the first, I, I might might depend on how you like define combo, but yeah, it was in uh, or it was in a standard deck. The mm-hmm. same standard had squandered resources, which was like black green, sacrifice a land, add one man of any color. Um, natural balance, which was like two green green for a sorcery. Anyone who controls less than five lands can search for that many lands and put them on the play and put them on the battlefield. Um, and like drain life and prosperity and the way it would work is like you exile a bunch of cards in your hand you prosperity for a bunch you exile those cards for more things uh you can like sacrifice your lands and then float the mana and cast natural balance to get your lands back out of your library uh and then eventually after um you know basically going through this combo chain you just drain life your opponent for as as much as you can uh definitely a, a really neat card and it's it's kind of funny that they put so many engines into one block environment or like one standard environment yeah really um and again i think it was just because they were trying to flex and see like what was possible you know like what can somebody do with a uh, with making magic cards in spaces that like they don't uh normally get to make them in i guess so i i think it's it's cool it's interesting the game is better for having combos i know that combos can be unsatisfying kills for people but like the fact that you can mix and match the pieces like this is one of the reasons that magic is one of the best games around so um definitely like totally get the the appeal of this card i love it so much so my first pet card is also going to be a really weird one <laughs> So my first pet card is um, kind of comes with a few of them. So it's Illumination. It is a well now it's an instant. It wasn't interrupt for white white. So two white pips, just two mana, uh, and it says counter target artifact or enchantment spell. The caster gains life equal to the CMC, or I guess it would be mana value nowadays. And I do actually run Illumination Index um, in particular. I have a slot in my feather list that I put counterspells in and I switch which counterspell it is um, every like four-ish months just so that you're not sure if you're going to get like memory lapsed or illuminationed or manatized or or what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a huge proponent of like white getting counterspells even narrow ones that like protect your things or only counter like uh, instants or sorceries or something like that just to protect their board. Um, and I am trying to practice what I preach with this spell. And also it's really funny when the, the mono white or white red list uh, 
like counters the Etherflux Reservoir or something like that. Um, so I, I yeah I like this. It's uh, definitely not one of the best arts in the set. Um, from a, a person we were <laughs> talking about earlier, I'm pretty sure. Uh, oh no no, that we're talking about Douglas. <laughs> but um, yeah, this is just a funny card that I I will still play with, and I try to do that with all of my picks except for some of them so um what's your next pet card all right uh my next pet card is null chamber so this is three and a white for an enchant world and boy i'm gonna have to look up the oracle text on this one um so as it enters the battlefield you and an opponent each choose a card name other than a basic land card name Spells with the chosen name can't be cast, and lands with the chosen names can't be played. So, uh, basically, in a four-player commander game, you can use this and say, like, hey, buddy, I know you're not doing well. How about me and you name their commanders? Uh, and <laughs> It's um, a neat little prison effect to lock somebody out of their commanders uh, that I... I haven't unfortunately been able to fit it into too many lists, but in like an enchantress list or some other deck that really likes to or doesn't mind casting a do nothing enchantment, um, it's pretty powerful. It's also like, you know, definitely has a political bent to it. So if that's something you're interested in, uh, it's worth taking a look at. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I actually would recommend people like this card in particular, but also just the enchant worlds. Like some of them you know but like there's some good ones and there's definitely at there's definitely at least niche ones where like they do something very particular that certain decks want um so cuz the idea was like you're on a new world and now this new rule is in effect so um take a look at them. it but one of the other cards on my top 5 is also an enchant world yep yep uh, yeah yeah i i we'll we'll talk about it then but that's also um a very favorite card of mine. <laughs> so my next one is um, it is a black card. It is Ashen Powder. Uh, this is a sorcery. It costs two black black, so four MV. And it says put target creature card from an opponent's graveyard uh, onto the battlefield under your control. So it's basically a reanimate an opponent's thing. I've been playing with this card since Commander existed. I've played it in decks that just had a lot of self mill. Um, I played or not self mill. I played it in decks with a lot of mill. Um, I played it in decks where, uh, especially when the format was more battle cruisery, like you just kind of play it after someone wraths and like steal the best thing. Um, I think it was better. Um, it's good if you know your meta, and it was better back when the format was slower and there's a lot more big bombs. But I've still played it like when I had my Rexial list together, which um, wasn't really my Rexial list. Maybe we should do a podcast on weird decks we've brewed over the years <laughs> that we don't have anymore um i had an ashen powder in it because people will be like oh well i'm playing a creature list and like your rexiel's not going to hit my stuff and i'm like well no i still made sure i have ways to interact with your deck if i mill you so ashen powder is a big part of that like being able to steal funny things like all of a sudden the um what's the crater helion or whatever that just deals damage to everything like yes. I remember someone was like, oh, I don't have anything like playing at a, a card shop in town. Like this, your your deck doesn't do anything to me. And I'm like, well, no, I'm pretty sure it does. And he's like, no, like I don't have instants or sorceries. And I'm like, 
K and then like I remember stealing his helion and like winning that game <laughs> because <laughs> of it. So um it was pretty silly. So it can lead to some cool interesting exchanges like that. Um but what is your next card? Uh my next card is Kukemsa Pirates. It's three and a blue for a two two human pirate. And if it attacks and isn't blocked, you can have it choose or you can choose to have it deal no damage to the defending player. And if you do, you gain control of target artifact that player controls. So you gain control of it forever. So this is a really fun one if you have a deck that's good at sneaking through creatures or if you happen to have a pirates list, then you're looking for uh, more pirates to fill it out. But stealing like a soul ring or something off of this just feels incredible. And unlike a lot of creatures that steal things, you keep it forever. It's not it doesn't go back or anything if this dies or leaves the battlefield. Yeah, I, I love Kukemsa Pirates. Your last three cards are actually cards I actively have in decks, which is pretty funny. Um, but this is in my my like Malcolm and Dargo list because um, it's one of the better pirates. And uh, if when it gets in there, it can really ruin someone's day. Um, so yeah, also a huge fan. Um, my next one I'm not going to talk a lot about because I already did. It's Zerlin of the Claw. I'm just always going to love Zerlin, and I'm always going to love dragons. And uh, I don't know, necromancy and dragons—they just get me. You know, mm-hmm. they—they hold me gently in their arms and cradle me to sleep when I have a bad day. <laughs> so Zerlin is definitely something I would highly recommend looking at. Um, it's also just kind of if you are playing like a restrictive color identity for dragons like maybe a mono red or like a red green or something zerlin is a great card for your list too so i would look at it there um being able to cheat out something big that you need in the turn or like your um scourge of valkus or something like that that you might need to combo off or whatever um is nothing to scoff at so uh and also it lives through most like earthquakes because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh he's got the big booty so yeah um we're almost done here. I only have a few more to talk about, but uh, what is your next card? Uh, my next card is a weird counterspell. It is Withering Boon. It's one and a black. Yes, you heard correctly. For an instant, <laughs> uh, as an additional cost to cast it, pay three life. Counter target creature spell. So, you know, of course, black is the king of spot removal, but there are some situations where a Doom Blade isn't really going to save you. And so the, the fact that this can stop, like, Crater Hoof Behemoth can stop an Avenger of Zendikar, can stop these big creatures that just greatly impact the board and their le- and make it so that their base body doesn't actually matter that much. Uh, I am just a big fan of this card. It's a, an effect you will probably never see again in black. So I, I am glad that it exists. Yeah. Um, I like this card because I think it shows like again they're kind of flexing their muscles about like what magic is and like what magic can look like and they basically correctly analyzed that like well i mean we could give black a creature counter spell because it's basically the same as a kill spell like the difference between this is and dark banishing is like timing right <laughs> like mm-hmm. like it's it's not really that different between terror and this card um i would say that this card is a little bit better and you could tell that they recognize that too, which is why it has the pay three life thing on it, but like not that much better, you know, (laughs) like 
like uh it's it's pretty cool and i think in a format like commander where like essence scatter is like kind of always good there's always going to be a creature to counter because there's commanders it's like it, it's cool it's great i have this in a deck right now and it has trolled many a friend <laughs> <laughs> um my next card isn't actually one i play with it's just one i want you to look at so i want everyone who's not driving or something like that who doesn't know about brushwag to look at Brushwag. Um, so this is a classic because they did... Uh, my last two cards are basically story cards. So Brushwag um, in M10, they kind of cleaned up the rules and they cleaned up creature types. And one of the creature types they didn't clean up, they left alone for some reason, uh, with only one member at the time was Brushwag, who at the time was a summon Brushwag, uh, eventually a creature Brushwag, and maintained being a creature brushwag to this day. Why? Uh, I don't know. What is a brushwag? I I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it has any connotation or like any. Um, I don't think it has any like historical like re- relevance. Um. It, eventually they made almighty brushwag in Ikoria, so like now there's two of them but like the, it, i don't think it has any like real world um like historical um predecessors i think it just is a funny uh plant like bramble cat thing Badger. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> still not clear to me exactly what makes something a brushwag or how or like where a brushwag comes from. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I think they just enjoyed keeping it mysterious for us. Uh, it's something to ponder. Yeah, yeah, the mystery of the brushwag. Um, the card itself is like pretty unremarkable. It's a three two for three one green green, and it says if brushwag becomes blocked or. Um, if brushwag blocks or becomes blocked, it gets minus two minus. Oh, sorry. If brushwag blocks or becomes blocked, it gets minus two plus two until end of turn. So it attacks as a three two and it blocks as a two four. Um, so like, not the craziest card. Um, but uh, maybe like brushwags like play with size because like Almighty Brushwag had an activated ability that changed its size i don't i don't know but now there's two there's two points in the in the data now mm-hmm. for what a brushwag could be so maybe maybe someday we'll go back to aquaria and see a third one <laughs> <laughs> um so now do you uh i think you there's one more pet card i think i've got one more uh mm-hmm. it is the, the second enchant world i was alluding to earlier it is tombstone stairwell two black black for an enchant world with cumulative upkeep one in a black uh, at the beginning of each upkeep if tombstone stairwell is on the battlefield each player creates a two two black zombie creature token with haste named tomb spawn for each creature card in their graveyard at the beginning of each end step or when tombstone stairwell leaves the battlefield destroy all tokens created with tombstone stairwell they can't be regenerated so uh, this is a really powerful tool for decks that are good at filling their graveyard. So self-mill decks, for example, um, I used to run this in Sidisi Brood Tyrant. Uh, it was really, really good in um, Phoenix God of Deception because the tokens have haste, you can, and it triggers each upkeep. So 
on your upkeep, it triggers, I get my tokens, I tap them to mill myself and put more creatures in my graveyard. So on the next opponent's upkeep, I get even more zombies, mill myself for more. Uh, it doesn't. It barely matters that it has cumulative upkeep because just a couple go a couple rounds of this card uh, activating is enough to pretty much put your library into your graveyard in a Phoenix list. Yeah, this card is really crazy. Uh, I have it in Sir Conrad. Um, I've played it in other black decks. I've played it in uh, when like a sapling of Colfinor deck that used like a lot of graveyard shenanigans. Um, I played it in. Um, oh God, uh, I can't remember. I've made too many decks at this point. Um, this card is just um, incredible. Like it, it's so weird. Um, it's one of the few cards that I will like will continually pay the cumulative upkeep cost on. Um, and it was actually one of the cards that I bought a bunch of when I first like I I took a break from Magic. Um like around like dark steel and started playing again in college and um have been playing ever since then and i picked up a bunch of them because i realized like i had a casual 60 card list that used tombstone stairwell and like mole drifters and the ravens familiars and uh things so like i keep cards in hand find tombstone stairwell and then find things that trigger off of creatures dying so um i go pretty far back with uh with this guy <laughs> and I, I love it dearly i remember looking at it as a kid and like not understanding like exactly how it worked and therefore not playing with it and then when i started playing again i was like this kind of seems insane <laughs> <laughs> and then the world kind of realized that it was insane too and now now they're a little expensive but uh definitely got it on the ground floor there yeah uh I think you've got one more pet card as well. Yes. So my last pet card uh, we talked about earlier, it's Tika's Dragon. Um, and I really only have, like, I have a little story about it. But one of the reasons I love Tika's Dragon is that it, it was a card I saw as a kid in, like, a case, like, at a card shop. Uh, honestly, I think I saw it. At, no, I don't think it was the wizard stores. But it was back when there were wizard stores. Um, it was, like, that era of magic. And... Um, it like captured my imagination. It was a cool dragon. Um, and I just wanted it so bad. So eventually, um, the first kind of artifact y list I made for Commander, like pretty early on in like 2012, 2011, around there, I made a send triplets list. Um, that was like, didn't really use them other than the fact that they were Esper and I could play with a bunch of, uh, cards that cared about artifacts in those colors and they were an artifact so they like contributed the synergies and i had a tika's dragon in the list so my story is i was playing um i was playing a friend friend of the show friend of ours uh mark and we had been playing at a coffee shop nearby and it ended up just being the two of us in the game so it was me against him and he's playing uh sakashima of a thousand faces uh og blue shot sakashima um, and I was playing send triplets. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I thought I had him dead on board because I had a Thopter Foundry and a, a Sword of the Meek in play, which means that for every mana I could spend, I didn't have it infinitely, but I had every mana I could spend, I could gain a life and play a Thopter. And I thought I had him dead on board, um, but he flashes in a bribery and I go, well, there's really nothing he can get right now 
that will screw my day up because like I, I might not be able to go infinite with all of these thopters, but I have like 10 thopters and I'm at like 20 life or something like that. There's, there's not really anything he could get in my deck that's going to kill me. So I'm good. Um, and he gets Tika's dragon <laughs> from my list and puts it onto the battlefield. And we just kind of look at each other and I go, okay, like, oh, no, no, no. I was at a low life total. I think that's what it was. I think like I had made a bunch of thopters, but he kept attacking me with something because basically it was this position where like I could either attack, like get attacked by Tika's dragon and take five and lose, or I could like block with a bunch of thopters, but each thopter actually made it so that like I lost more life than (laughs) like I was uh, blocking with the thopters. And uh, it was the one and only time I've ever seen the Rampage ability like be relevant on <laughs> Tika's Dragon or really any card with Rampage. Um, it was just the perfect confluence of like, I'm at four, Mark got this really goofy creature for Mirage and... Uh, and now I lose because bribery is a pretty good card, especially flashing it in. He had a, a Vidalcanori in play. So um, that is my story of Tika's Dragon. I, I kept it in for a while. Um, it's not a very good card, so eventually it definitely got cut. But it's another one of those cards that I just kind of keep around because um, fond memories and like it just kind of nostalgia. I'm not very nostalgic when it comes to like deck building or like putting cards in decks but i am nostalgic um outside in so far as like collecting and like talking about the game i think there's like a lot of cool stories like that and a lot of memories and friendships that people have um that i think we should celebrate when it comes to to magic so um which is kind of the point of the series we're looking back at like all these sets and figuring out like what they were doing how they affected magic and and this is going to be my segue into kind of closing up this episode, which is pretty long, actually. <laughs> what do you think was the biggest design lesson from Mirage? Oh my gosh. Um, that's <laughs> or, really or what, difficult. Or may, maybe because that is a pretty big question. May, what, what are some design lessons from Mirage that you think would be good takeaways for designers nowadays? Uh, okay, I would say if you see your players are using your cards in a certain way uh lean into that so you know limited wasn't supported by wizards until it was like when they saw that people wanted to have a way to better enjoy the process of opening packs um then they they pivoted and were like okay how can we make this experience more fun for them uh and introduce that starting with mirage like you know you can it's it's not going to be as polished as a modern limited environment but it's playable like you can play with your this product in a way you never could before and it makes cracking a box more fun uh and last longer than just well now i've got a bunch of trash and a bunch of uh crappy commons that i'm never going to play like these you know two twos for three suddenly become relevant in a when before they were just kind of filler so that's one big lesson um uh i'd say that's and i guess like the second lesson would just be if you know that it's hard to get into your game um if you know that it's hard to get into your set figure out ways to make it easier for people like the reminder the addition of reminder text was just a really great innovation to make it so that 
you can you can sort of suss out what's going on just from the cards you don't need to you can you don't need to be taught as much when the cards are are helping you learn the game yeah i definitely agree with that um i think there's just yeah there's just a lot of things that mirage did that um we're still doing studio x is still doing in that um definitely i i I am gonna say this is still one of my favorite sets and i'm gonna keep saying that when we talk about these uh these (laughs) like retrospectives but it's true like it was so cool and it did so much for the game and for like us as players so if you had to grade this set uh you know we 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 gave grades to alliances we gave grade to the dark uh if you had to grade mirage uh as an expansion what grade would you give it Ooh, um i would as an expansion i think this is probably like a solid a or like an a minus like i i think this is like it took new mechanics and oh i'd say a minus because it had some mechanics that obviously like failed or flopped or weren't very interactive but like there's a bunch of cool cards that stand out you could actually draft it if you wanted to it introduced a bunch of mechanics it like explored new design space it was fun uh it looks really good um the flavor is like a home run on like a ton of these cards um it introduced things that have stuck with the game for forever whether that's just like the diamond cycle uh commanders people play with etc etc so i i'm gonna give this an a at least an a minus i think i'm gonna give it an a plus other than maybe alpha it's hard to think of like sets that are as successful as mirage was um it it looks amazing it uh, like the the art quality is a uh, quantum leap over what sets <laughs> looked like just a year prior to this um like flanking was a pretty uh compared to the mechanics that preceded it flanking was a pretty decent shot at a new mechanic it, it's not how we would, would do things these days but it also doesn't look that different from like a bushido um and phasing yes like just phasing on a creature is not very compelling but all the other uses of phasing are really interesting and of course that's why it's seeing print in current magic sets the they they made a limited environment they did a pretty good they i mean they took a pretty good shot at a limited environment despite never ever having done it before um the they like introduced the block structure i mean they or at least like they they came into it with the block structure uh which makes a very different product from like the ice age style block where it's all just crammed in and sticking out of the the corners and stuff um uh they they introduced several like types of cards that you know they keep going back to the well on um God, I just uh and of course like the setting. The setting, like they this was the biggest departure from baseline magic flavor that had been done up to that point, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they did an excellent job of it. Like Mirage the cards still stand out from every other set in magic as like a unique flavor and setting. Um 
I, I don't if we're, if we're like grading it based on you know the standards of the time. I d- I don't see how you could give it uh, <laughs> less than an A. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give it an A plus. Yeah, I mean, even I'm I'm even thinking about it on like the current standard or like design. Like, uh, I I think this set just killed it. Like in general, <laughs> like you mm-hmm. know what I mean. Like, like there there's very few sets that are this good and cohesive. And maybe we'll talk about some more like middle mid age of magic tier lists. But um, basically, I agree with you. I think this is. Uh, a slam dunk. <laughs> That's it. I think that rounds us out, right? Yeah, yeah. That is the end of the episode. Um, if you have more thoughts on Mirage, um, there's stories we're not aware of. If you have more insight on this uh, Sue Ann Harkey drama, uh, oh yeah, definitely want to hear more on that. Um, but that brings us to the end of the episode. I'm going to give a brief thank you to our Patreon patrons. They are Gustav, Ryan, Addison, Rick, Raphael, Kyle, Laser, Charlotte, The White Clays, Hannah, Andy, James, Logan, Roger, Evan, Bryce, Dylan, Benjamin, Jamie, Matthew, Jason, Kyle, Brandon, Kevin, Jeremy, Russell, Dylan, John, Micah, Troy, Roxanne, Charles, Daniel, Andrew, Jason, Paul, Johan, Jonathan, Christian, Jim, Emmanuel, Andrea, Asilios, and Logan. Thank you all for supporting the show. And if you're not currently a Patreon patron but would like to become one, please check us out at patreon.com slash commander theory. Thanks for listening. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at commander theory. And on Twitter, I am at fat Bartleby. You can also email us at commander theory at gmail.com. Our theme song is Lincoln continental by Nick cage. You can check him out on SoundCloud. And if you're interested in some other creative products I'm working on, I have a band you can check out. We are a pink punk, pop punk band called The Have Nots, all one word like Cosmonauts. Uh, you can listen to all of our music for free right now. You can just head over to thehavenots.bandcamp.com. That is T-H-E-H-A-V-N-A-U-T-S.bandcamp.com. And check us out. Let me know what you think. <laughs> <laughs>